introducing Minor Wisdom Quintet. My mother always told me that if you wanted something, just go get it. Just go. So I was sitting at my computer and one of the ways that I figure out who I want to interview or just people that uh, I'd like to have on the podcast is I go to the UIL Facebook page or the uh, Texas Theater Exchange or just one of those pages and I scroll through. And I was doing that one day and Don Nigro's name was on there. He's a member of one of the pages. I don't remember which one, but he is a member of one of the pages. And I, I was like, Don Nigro, like Don Nigro, like 400 plus plays Don Nigro. Don Nigro, like I just produced one of his shows for our one act play Don Nigro. Don Nigro, like the first show I ever produced as an educator, Don Nigro. Yeah, that Don Nigro. And so I thought, what is it? What is it going to hurt? I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to ask him if he would be a guest on the podcast. And he, within 30 minutes, replied, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Here we are. This week, I've got Don Nigro on the podcast. One of the greatest American playwrights ever and still living and living a great life and still producing plays and a living legend in the world of theater, Mr. Don Nigro's on this week's podcast. I'm not going to give a long introduction. I'm not going to do an opinion this week. I'm not going to do any of that stuff because I want to get straight to the interview. I do want to say that I saw that some people uh, left me a five-star review on iTunes and left comments and all this kind of stuff. Please, 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 if you are enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star review. I've also learned this past week, because it was my spring break, this past week I interviewed quite a few people. I interviewed Travis Poe, Rachel Maddox, Jackie Kanya, uh, my superintendent, of course, Don Nigro. Uh, I in uh, interviewed uh, a number of other people to get on this podcast, to get ahead, to get things in the can so that I'm not constantly every week looking for things. But what I learned is that people are listening. Oh, Larry Balfe which there oh my gosh that interview was amazing but i learned that people are listening to who they want to listen to and and that's not a complaint that's great but what i want to hear from you all is who do you want to hear who's going to tickle your fancy i i, I can't say that i can reach out to david mamet or a bunch of living playwrights that are currently producing shows and writing plays i i, I can try i've actually done that with quite a few people but uh, Don Nigro was just, just very nice enough. I, my English, not so good. My English, not very good. Uh, he was just so nice and, and perfect to get on this podcast. And, uh, I really appreciate it. Follow me on Twitter at Mr. Blake Minor. Friend me on Facebook. If you want to be my friend, you got a friend in me. Hey, uh, but just, I, I really appreciate those people that are listening to this podcast and those people that have been here from day one. And finally, I get, not that I haven't had in the theater world big stars, but like this is a really super niche podcast for Texas theater educators. And everybody I've had on is tied to Texas in some way. Don Nigro is not. Uh, he's not tied to Texas. He's just a huge deal. Please enjoy this week's podcast interview with Mr. Don Nigro. 
I've been doing this for about 50 years. Uh, I've written 470 some plays. They've been produced in every state and in countries all over the world in many different languages. And that's how I make a living. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And what is behind you right now? I know this isn't a video podcast, but you have a very uh, uh, busy library behind you. Are those works that inspire you or are those your works or those, what are those? This whole wall behind me uh, is, is all books. And uh, this right behind me happens to be some of the oldest books I have, which are uh, the Ballantine Chamber of Horrors paperbacks, okay. which I read when I was about 10 or 11. Uh, Zachary's Vulture Stew, Zachary's Midnight Snacks, um, uh, The Other Passenger by John Keir Cross, which I highly recommend. Okay. This is a book that influenced me enormously as a kid. They're paperbacks with very lurid covers by John Powers um, that I just loved. And they, they really sort of introduced me to the adult world. Right. I didn't grow up in a place where we had a lot of books. I mean, my parents bought me kids books and stuff, but once I started getting past that, I had to find my own stuff. So I, I got, I accumulated a lot of stuff at the drugstore. And in those days you could, you could buy good books at the drugstore. Yeah. You could buy Hemingway, you, I, I, Hemingway, DH Lawrence, all kinds of people like that. And so then, this basically the remains of my childhood exploration wow into the adult world of science fiction, horror, mystery, Sherlock Holmes, and are there, stuff that to me. Are there any books that you wish you had kept? Like you thought, uh, you know, eventually, you know, I don't, I don't need this anymore, but now in hindsight, you wish you'd still had held on to? Well, I, I used to trade books with my friend, and I have, uh, and I also used to sell books when I was in college, textbooks and things. And one of the things that, uh, that the internet is wonderful for is I can now get those books back. Right. And that's what I do. <laughs> right. So a lot, and the further back in my life, the better. So I have been um, acquiring used copies of books that I read when I was 11 or 12, which made an impression on me, but which somehow disappeared from my life. And it's pretty interesting. It's like archeology, span right? Archeology span of the soul. Right. So I, I did uh, want to ask you, you know, I read a little bit about who inspired you and who influenced you. Are there any uh, inspirations that were you able to meet that you were able to kind of uh, meet them and let them know that they are some of the reason you became a playwright and you, you know, the, the type of style that you write, any of those people uh, were you able to shake their hand and say hello to? Nope. No, <laughs> not a, not a one, huh? No, I've never met Tom Stoppard. I okay. never got a chance. I did get it. I did actually. Um, the closest I ever got to to one of my writer heroes was when I went to London and saw Harold Pinter in a production of his play, The Collection, at okay. the Donmar Warehouse, where you're very close. And I always sat in the front row in London, even at the National Theater, the cheapest tickets are the front row for right. some reason. And I, I like the front row because I, one, I don't have very good eyes, and two, I love to watch actors work. Right. I love to watch them work closely. So at the Donmar Warehouse, I got within two feet of, of Harold Pinder because he was sitting at a desk in the play, watching, and that was the closest That's thing it. I got to <laughs> Okay. Well, hey. But it, I, I went to the national and saw Ian McKellen and sat in the front row. And that's, that's an education. Right. Just watching that guy work is just amazing. 
every single moment, beautifully crafted, totally natural, as if he was just making it up as he was going along. Right. And he's, you know, he'd, he'd done this like 50 times. Right. <laughs> you know, that was a great education. So, uh, n- uh, no, I haven't uh, met any of those guys. I never met Shakespeare or. Right. Well, yeah, I know (laughs) that one, I assumed. (laughs) Yeah. But the modern guys that I I would have enjoyed talking to are are Tom Stoppard, who who was actually still alive. Uh, The early plays of Edward Bond were very influential on me. I love uh, 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 Pinter and Beckett and a guy named Peter Barnes, who wrote The Ruling Class and a bunch of other wonderful plays. I think Peter Barnes' work is closer to mine than any of those guys. Yeah. Some of so, um, but they're mostly British, yeah, um, or Irish, yeah, not not from these parts, and so that that yes. gets me to you are from and still live in Ohio, correct? Yeah. Okay. Is there uh, is there something that has kept you in Ohio that is uh, kind of you know just is it homely? Is it is it just for you? Is it kind of your land? Is it you know that kind of idea? Well, I live in a. A small town near here until I was five, and then we moved to Arizona, where we okay. come back here every summer to visit relatives. Um, and once I went off to college, um, I was pretty much gone for right. for a long time. I would come back here to visit my father, who raised me, but uh, I was uh, I was mostly traveling around, being a grad student, being a playwright, directing, acting, yeah. doing stuff like that for years. And I just come back here on holidays, sometimes in the summer, whenever I didn't have to be somewhere else. I was a wandering playwright for a long time. And I really didn't like that. Yeah. <laughs> I liked being in rehearsal. Yeah. You know, I liked being around the theater. I loved sitting in the green room talking to the actors. I loved watching the play develop. I loved, you know, having my getting my fingers deep into the production right. and being involved in everything. Um, but I didn't really like traveling and I didn't like being away from having a sense of home. I always wished I had more of a sense of home. Um, So I did that for like 25, 30 years or something. It was a wandering playwright. When my father got older, my father was a disabled veteran. He was wounded in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. And as he got older, he had problems getting around. He had a very bad leg with lots of shrapnel had torn it up. So I moved back here to look after my dad, to help him out. And then later on to look after and be a caregiver for a number of years. And um, I was, for a while, I was still able to travel a little bit, not much. He left me this house and I got an awful lot of work done here because all of my books were here instead of me just coming back periodically, dumping a few books and then going out again. And I found, I found that I didn't want to leave. I found that there's a sense of peace here. And also by this point in my career, I was making enough money to, to actually uh, live off the royalties from plays. Earlier on, for the first 25 years or so, I was, most of my income came from um, teaching at universities, doing artist in residence things, directing. Uh, Once in a while, I would act in summer theater, do stuff like that. Um, But gradually, I was able to make enough from just writing, just the production or book royalties. Um, And a lot of my stuff was published by then. So I didn't really have to travel. Right. Um, and I just got used to sitting here. So, so how often do you write? You have, a, you have about, I guess, 420 plus plays credited to your name. Like how often, I, I just can't imagine, you know, when I was in grad school, I wrote a paper a week and I was, I thought that was too much. <laughs> so, so how often are you, uh, sitting down and writing? And, and I know that, uh, to, 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 
back it up a little bit. I know that a lot of your writing has to it comes from history, uh, history. Excuse me, with that weird emphasis, but it comes from history, uh, and it comes from you know actual life and actual events. So um, uh, the inspiration may come from that. But how often are you uh, sitting down and knocking out a play or a short play or something like that? I write every day. Okay. Um, I've always written every day. I mean, there have been some days, like when I was directing, when you're in a production and you're directing, it's very difficult right. for me to actually focus on something else while I'm directing something. But um, even then, I would always have a notebook with me and I would scribble stuff that didn't make any sense. And when I got into a more peaceful place, then I would open up the notebook and that would turn into something for right. several. No, I've always written. I wrote when I was a child. I was right. making up weird uh, epics involving stuffed animals and toy soldiers and uh, cowboys and um, playing cards before I could actually read and write. And once I could, I was writing all right. the time. When I went to college, I burned everything I wrote up to that point, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> which I, I regret now. Yeah. I don't advise that. Yeah. But it, at the time, <laughs> it was it was very embarrassing, both because it you know when you when you're about 16 or 17, your brain is developed enough so that you can read really great stuff right. and also that you can look at your own stuff and say man i'm nowhere near there yet yeah. i don't want anybody to see this uh, so i burned it all um uh, but once i got to college i started saving it but i i wrote all the time and i thought i thought i was going to be a novelist okay um and i was teaching at ohio state after i got my degree right. i didn't go to grad school i was lucky enough to get a job teaching comparative literature as a lecturer at ohio state for a couple of years and it was very lonely I'd, I'd teach during the day. I'd go home at night. I was living in a little red coach house thing. It was a very nice place for a writer. To lie. I was all alone. Most of the people I knew had graduated. Right. Um, and I was up there at night trying to write this novel, and it was just incredibly lonely, and I thought I was going to lose my mind. I'm a very introverted, shy person anyway, except when I'm doing theater, then right. I'm, I'm not. But every, in every other human right. interaction, I am. And I remembered that theater was something I could always do without uh, it was one way I could relate to people where I felt like I knew what I was doing, even though I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just felt that way. Yeah. So I, I started at the university. I started um, working on sets and um, uh, uh, auditioning for shows, and I started getting cast, and I started uh, directing things. And, and the last thing I did was take a playwriting course. And uh, at the time, I was trying to write big, complicated, surreal plays with many characters, the sort of thing I write now, but I was trying to do it to begin with right. when I was starting out. And I didn't really know how to do that yet. So I had a lot of unfinished plays that I finished years later. Um, and in the playwriting class, the, the director, the, the teacher, a great guy named David Ayers, um, uh, said uh, he didn't like this sort of stuff anyway. He liked, you know, Robert Anderson, let's sit in the kitchen and talk about our childhood kind yeah. of American drama, <laughs> sure. not my cup of tea. But he said, okay, look, um, um, you're, you're, you're trying to do stuff that's too complicated. Um, you don't know how to do that yet. Write me a simple, a simple play, small cast, set with one location about people your own age and something you know about. Right. Um, so I wrote Seascape with Sharks and Dancer. And he called me into his office and banged on the table and said, Don, I think you're going to be a playwright. <laughs> and I didn't believe him, but a year later, I had my first production. And I've been writing plays ever since watching that first production. Yeah. Watching the audience watch that first production. Um, it just seemed like a miracle to me. Right. That you could take all this, this chaotic, 
meaningless suffering and stupidity that was that my life was built on. And I could sort of generate a play out of that and then give it to the director who gave it to the actors who embodied it in their own flesh and then gave it to the audience. And these people could sit there absolutely wrapped, yeah. <laughs> totally attentive and laugh and cry and gasp. And all of a sudden, everybody, it, it was just an amazingly mystical kind of alchemical process. And I thought, wow, there's nothing That's like cool. this. Yeah. This is the way to actually get into people's souls yeah. with stuff that otherwise would have just been meaningless crap that happened to you or that you heard about or whatever. Um, so the writing became playwriting. And also doing in, being in the theater as opposed to being a novelist has given me a way to have a social life right. because I'm not shy around actors and directors and theater people. Um, I got to meet all these great girls and I got to have all kinds of uh, really interesting, crazy friends. Yeah. I never would have been able to do that if I'd stayed a novelist. Now, do you, so, do you write novels though? I mean, have you, have you dabbled I've in written, that? I've written seven novels and I had like four or five more almost finished and okay. I never really did much with them. Okay. I, I got, I've had, I had like a series of like very briefly three different fiction agents and I discovered soon that the, the, the fiction world is a totally different place than the theater world. Different agents, different publishers, but also different ideas about, you know, what it makes sense to, to write. Yeah. yeah, it was just a whole different thing. And I didn't really have time or any interest in figuring that out. Yeah. <laughs> what I have done is I've collected all these novels and now I mine them for plays. Right. So someday, maybe, maybe someday I will, I will uh, do something with them. But for right now, it was a good experience and, and it gave me infinite um, material because yes. uh, many of the things that I, that I wrote about in the novels, the characters and stories and like that, uh, you, you can, you can find, you know, um, 50 plays in one good novel. Yeah. So do you so, it was enjoyable. I've written pretty much every kind of thing. How how has your writing style changed, or not necessarily style, but I guess the 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 process of which you write over the past few years as technology has changed? And you know, you mentioned the notebook, uh, but do you walk around still with a notebook, or do you now have a laptop, or do you know how has that kind of morphed things for you and and changed your your way of writing your process? I went from writing longhand with an old fountain pen, an old blue fountain pen that smelled really good. I hated getting that up because it smelled so good. It was a mess. You know, it leaked all over the place. It was yeah. awful. But I, I liked the smell of the, the ink and I liked doing it. I went from that to a little Smith Corona portable typewriter, which I typed on for like 20, 25 years. And until the, the, uh, the, the the letters the little heads of the letters yeah. started popping off and hitting me in the face it was so <laughs> and i had to keep getting those letters soldered back on so finally i got an electric typewriter which i i loathed i hated the electric typewriter yeah. and then i switched to a, a mac and i loved the computer and uh so but but i still i still scribble first i still write uh almost everything starts longhand in a notebook right. often in a very chaotic state and then when it gets to a point where um, I've got enough there that I'm pretty sure it's going to be a play, then I switch to the computer. I type it into the computer. I rewrite as I'm typing it in the computer. I get myself a, a rough draft or something, and I print out as I go so I can scribble on what I'm printing out because I have to scribble. Right. Um, and gradually that the horrible mess of scribbled on um, printed out text 
gets cleaner and cleaner until it right. feels like it's done. So when do, when does a play become yours? Like when do you know? Okay, this is this is now a play, or or you know, I'm sure you have lots of uh, parts of your process where you kind of thought, okay, this one I'm I'm not as in love with this idea as I thought I would be. Let's move on to the next thing. When does a play like kind of make that turn and become your play? Does that well, make sense? it's 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 more it's more a question of I mean I never throw anything away and I never discard anything I try not, to write. Not anymore. Have, not anymore. <laughs> I had maybe, maybe, I think there's like 35 unfinished plays, some of which date back to the early seventies <laughs> and some are uh, from like last year. Yeah. Um, so I've finished most of the things that I've started, but there's, there's this percentage of them that I haven't. And I just keep pulling them out. When I finish something, I just pull out a, a notebook, uh, I, uh, a, a file folder. I have files here. And uh, these are my unfinished ones sitting in here. And when I get done, I'll pull these out and I'll read through them again and I'll scribble on them. And one of them will just, if I'm lucky, sort of kind of catch fire in my head and it'll keep going. If it doesn't, I start something else. Um, but I don't ever discard anything. And it's never, it's always in my mind, it's, it's, there's a play there. I just, it, sometimes it takes me 30 years to find it. Sometimes it's <laughs> well, there immediately. Yeah. Sometimes it, it just, it's like, uh, the play grabs you by the hand and is running and you're just sort of trailing behind it, trying not to fall down. Right. Um, but most of the time it's not like that. <laughs> most of the time it, it appears in fragments. Right. Um, and uh, it's like putting together a puzzle, but it can be, it can be anything, but no, once something's itching at the inside of my head, I write to figure out what it is. Okay. And most, most of writing is really, it's tapping my subconscious. I'm not a planner. I'm not a person who figures out ahead of time what the play is going to be and how it's going to end and like that. Sometimes I can see that. And if I can, I will make an outline no longer than like on one side of one sheet of paper, just so I don't forget it. But any kind of outline thing that's longer than that would be a waste of time for me. I'd rather write the scenes. I'd rather go ahead and dive into just the go. scenes than, than plan it out ahead of time. So it's largely a process of tapping my subconscious, something even some very apparently arbitrary external stimulus will will open that door. Once that door to the subconscious opens, you just got to relax and let the stuff come out. <laughs> and so I write it all down. And then once all that crap stops flying out of the inside of my head, then I have um, a whole lot of uh, jungle of written stuff, which I, I look at and I see what kind of coherence it makes. And then I use the rational part of my brain to, right. to, to respectfully um, edit, rewrite, sure. rearrange, figure out what's missing, figure out what doesn't belong there, stuff like that. But I try, the, the, the basis of it's the subconscious. All the good stuff is from the subconscious. It keeps surprising. As <laughs> yeah. long as it keeps surprising me, I know I'm on the right track. Do you have somebody that you bounce ideas off of? Do you have, no, uh, no? it's just, it's that subconscious thing, huh? Yeah, yeah. I don't don't do that. And I don't do script development. I mean, right. I have in the past sometimes had readings and stage readings, which right. were very helpful. Some theaters, all theaters do this differently, but the, the, the process that is kind of taken over now of, okay, well, first we'll have a, a reading and then we'll all tell you how to rewrite and then we'll have a stage reading and then we'll tell you how to rewrite again. Right. And then we'll have a workshop production and we'll all tell you how to rewrite again. And then maybe we'll decide not to produce it. <laughs> that whole process is something that I don't like and yeah. that I just don't do. Yeah. Um, 
it, it, I think it's cost me a great deal in terms of productions, but I don't care. The, the point is you have to stay in touch with the way of working that works for you. One of the things that's delighted me recently, I've been having a lot of productions in Russia. I have a terrific Russian translator who works very fast, who loves my plays, and who knows where to send them. And in Russia, the process seems to be he fin he's, reads my play. He translates the play. He sends it not to the literary department where, you know, four uh, uh, teenagers read it who are not being paid, you know, <laughs> slaves of the theater and then maybe pass it up. He sends it directly to the artistic director, who was wow. a famous guy in Russia. This guy reads it. He says, uh, I love this. We'll go into rehearsal in three weeks. And then they do the play. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's more like the way I like to do right. it. And they do beautiful productions in Russia under right very difficult circumstances obviously right um so i i prefer not to bounce things off right. folks i just trust my own stuff and if you know if people don't like it they don't have to produce it have have you been over to russia to to see your work no no, no i've been to germany and uh, england that's all but yeah. i've been produced it's not just russia too there's yeah. all the countries that were in, in the former soviet union so i've had productions in Estonia, Belarus, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. Wow. There's a lot of Russians in Finland. Yeah. I've had productions in Finland and Russian, both by from theaters that are, are Russian people and, and Ukrainians. A lot of Ukrainians have moved to Finland the, during the war. Yeah. And they started their own theater. So I had a, <laughs> I had a production in Ukrainian in, in Finland. Right. Uh, people from there. And uh, so there's, there's a plus. I get productions in other European countries in Spain and France and places like that. How, how long did it take for you to kind of find your style or did you know the minute you wrote your first play kind of, that was the path. You, know, you, I don't have. <laughs> you, don't, you don't think so? I, I don't think I have. A okay. style. I mean, others might observe things that I'm not observing. Yeah. Every time I start something from my point of view, I'm having to reinvent the whole process. Okay. I, I, I write every play differently. I use different conventions. I combine conventions. I invent conventions. I throw, you know, I, I subvert conventions. Um, the play, I just listen to the play and it, it shows me what to do. So I don't, um, there probably are certain things. There certainly are certain things yeah. that, that you, if you sat down and examined it, you could see from play to play. Well, here's a theme. Here's something he's sure. obsessed with. There, there certainly are certain symbols and ideas and things that I return to again and again, but I don't know that there's a specific kind of play that I've written because right. every every story eventually reveals to me its own set of conventions, and I just use those. Right. Is there? So I've written big, complicated epics and and monologues and fairly realistic, yeah, traditional plays and plays that. God knows who will ever understand them. And I, I don't care. I, I don't care. Whatever the subconscious tells me, I just follow that. Is there a type of story that you think you, that you seek out or is there, uh, is it, is it just what you've kind of fallen into? You know, if you, like you said, your subconscious, if it's saying go this direction and, and kind of write this story, then do it. it it's something itching inside my head. Gotcha. Often it's there before I know what it is. Got it. I even know it's there. And, and sometimes a really arbitrary external thing can let it out. Right. Um, uh, an example would be um, a friend of mine, Mark Cuddy, was took over as artistic director at the Idaho Shakespeare Festival yeah. a number of years ago. And he wanted to do a season of two Shakespeare's and a third play, which was kind of like Shakespeare, but which would give his, his big 
uh, young apprentice company something fun to do. And it was at the time they were performing outdoors by the woods. And he, he got the idea. He said, can you write me a Robin Hood play for my yeah. apprentices to do? Now, I never would have written a Robin Hood play. Right. I like Robin Hood. liked Robin Hood since I was a kid. I used to watch the TV series and uh, um, uh, I read the ballads later and stuff like that. So it's a subject. I never would have written about that. Right. But that apparently arbitrary stimulus um, opened up something inside me, right. which was at the time um, an extreme anger at and hatred of the Reagan administration. <laughs> so okay. I wrote a Robin Hood play, which was actually a very dark send up of the things I hated. Right. Uh, censorship, the rape of the environment, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, trickle down economics, yeah. everything I hated about the Reagan administration. got <laughs> into that Robin Hood play because, right. you know, Robin Hood is a, he steals from the rich and gives yeah. to the poor. He does the opposite of trickle down. Right. <laughs> and so I did all that, but I was careful to do it in a way that that it, the play would make sense even if nobody knew anything about that. And so this play is still being done by people who right. weren't even born then. Yeah. Um, and it still works and it's still funny and it still has, you know, it makes certain points. But that apparently arbitrary thing unleashed something inside me that I didn't know I needed to write right. until it happened. And then, so <laughs> ideally that'll work. If somebody, if somebody wants me to do something and I, I know it won't do that, then I just won't do it. Around the same time, somebody wanted me to write a play extolling the virtues of uranium mining in Colorado. <laughs> um, and I'm against uranium mining yeah. in Colorado. Right. Yeah. I don't like uranium mining yeah. in Colorado. Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That that I knew would close the door, not, not open the door, or the right. play would turn out to be something they wouldn't use anyway. <laughs> so is the, has the past year inspired you at all, you know, as far as storytelling is concerned? Has... <laughs> You know, it's been a heck of a, you know, almost exactly a year since things have shut down. And plus with the, the, the po political element, the civil rights element has, has this past year kind of tickled at you to say, hey, we got to tell a little bit of a story here. Well, I wrote I uh, for uh, one of those um, um, collections of very short plays on a particular subject. It was a video sort of production type thing. I've, I've had a bunch of those. Yeah. And uh, I, I did write a play for one of those. And then I wrote three other little plays to go with it. So I have a little little collection of plays about what it's like to be trapped in lockdown right. and how people drive each other crazy. I imagine everybody was writing those yeah. plays because yeah. we were all of us writers were, you know, trapped in the sink. Um, so, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, things <laughs> marinate, things marinate inside for a long time and i don't even know i just write what comes out yeah so so that i had i had this question up here too and you've kind of already answered it to an extent but is there a, a play or plays that have just given you the hardest time and and i know you've already mentioned you know some kind of marinade for 30 years uh but that may not be because it's difficult to write but are there plays that you have completed that gave you uh, a hard time that just you had to get through that quote-unquote writer's block, which, um, you know, exists some somewhat for people, but uh, not necessarily full-time writers. But, yeah, is that is that a, a truth I, for you? I, I prefer not to think of it as writer's yeah, block. Yeah, I, I know. I know that for a lot of writers. It's healthier yeah. not to think about it that yeah. way. Um, it's healthier to think about it as just um, it's there. I haven't found it yet. Right, right. <laughs> and also, if something stops on me, I don't give up on it. 
I will keep sort of nudging right. it, trying different approaches, things like that. But if it really doesn't want to happen yet, yeah. I will put it aside and work on something else. And that's sort of my way of handling a, a play that seems like it, it just feels like it's not ready to let me know what happens right. next. Okay. Um, or there's sometimes it's just there's something wrong. It looks like a play. It's the right length for a play. It could be produced this way, yeah. but there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. Sometimes I know what's wrong and I, I don't know how to fix it. Sometimes I don't know what's wrong, but I know something's wrong. And I always just trust my instinct. I'll just put it aside. I'll put aside like two years of work if if it's it's just not doesn't feel like it's right. it's there. But that's the way I, I I try to avoid just getting stuck. Right. Right. Um, write something else. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> and, and also the, the notebook, here's my notebook. The the, the notebook <laughs> helps me because it, anytime the play I'm working on at the moment doesn't seem to want to go anywhere, I just flip back through that notebook and there's stuff in there I forgot I put in there. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of stuff in there I forgot I put in there. I also keep a journal and I, I can go back to those. I have journals going back to the early 70s, wow. which I can go back. It's a gold mine of stuff yeah. that I forgot that I wrote, that I forgot I was interested in. Right. Yeah. Um, I... So it's better for me to just the way not to get stuck is to keep working even if you're not working on what you thought Same you wanted. Thing. Yeah. And that way I can always work, even if what I end up with, I have no idea what I'm going to do with. Right. It doesn't matter. The process of continuing to write while connected to that inner place where the images come from is more important than whether or not I finish what I'm working on right now. Right. Do as long you, as I can keep that flowing, I'm okay. Do you have any of your finished plays that you would like to go back and re-explore or continue uh, uh, you know, down, down the line? Well, I don't go back and rewrite once they're done. Okay. Generally. But I do have long cycles of plays. Right. And this is yeah. one of the, the things that I've really enjoyed over the years. I have a long cycle of plays that started by accident. Right. When I realized that two plays I had written that had a some kind of vague connection to my family's history um, uh, could be connected by something. Right. <laughs> and I ended up writing like a, there must be 25 or 26 or maybe more plays in this cycle of, of about this family in East Ohio. Yeah. It, it traces now from the 18th century to, uh, I don't know, mid 20th century or somewhere uh, further than that, actually. And I've, I've loved interlinking those plays and working on the same characters uh, at different ages in their lives. And uh, uh, sometimes, sometimes I write about them when they're old and then I try to imagine what it was like when they were young. Sometimes it's the reverse. And it's just fun. I've created this a labyrinth of characters yeah. and and history, which is so complicated that I've had to do a whole, I have, well, I have a whole big fat <laughs> notebook now, which is like the encyclopedia. Of yeah. these people. So I have, I have their dates of birth and it's insane, but I have their dates of birth and death and what happens to them and what plays they're in. So, wow. so I don't forget. Because it, when you create dragon, this right? whole world of yeah. plays that interlock, a kind of labyrinth yeah. of plays, you don't want it to contradict itself. Right. Right. The, so. It's is that a the the count? It's Pendragon, or is it? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that right. an actual yeah. county? Well, it's it's kind of it, it's kind of like around here. I okay. live in East Ohio. This is a rural county. I live by the woods. I sort of gradually bought the some of the property around me so people wouldn't cut down the trees. Right. There's a big hill behind the house. It's a wooded hill that I go up and walk on. 
Um, and I just bought the lot beside the house and I'm, I'm going to plant trees there. There used to be trees there. Somebody cut them down. I'm going to plant trees. There. Right. <laughs> this is crazy for an old man to do is plant trees, but that's what I'm going to do. I'm going <laughs> to spend the rest of my days writing frantically, trying to finish my life's work and planting those trees over there. Right. Um, uh, so it's, it's Pendragon County combines um, some places around here, a couple of towns, especially that I've lived in around here. Um, a lot of the genealogical research that I've done about um, my parents' families and things transformed into something a bit more mythic and strange. But uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it's, it's, I feel a really deep co connection to those plays. And I've loved um, the complex interconnectedness of it all. You have right. to make each play work on its own, even if you don't know yeah. anything about any of the other plays. But then you also have an enormous subtextual resource right. because you know what happens in the other plays. It's like the Kentucky cycle, kind of in a way. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I think it's like that. Yeah. So is there a play that you uh, wish maybe was more produced? I, I ask that because um, a director that I, I used to teach with uh, years ago called you, and I don't remember what the show was, but or messaged you about a specific play, and you had said, Nobody ever does that play, <laughs> and you were excited about it, uh, according to him. And we just did, we just produced Horde Massacre in Boston, um, yeah. which I know a, 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 quite a few people, when we would say that's a Don Nigro show, uh, they had never heard of it. They, they've heard of, you know, you, you have your go-tos, if you will. Is there a play that, that you would like to see produced more, a story that you would like to see told uh, by either high schools or professionals or whatever that might be? Well, there's lots of okay. There's a, <laughs> there's a there's a there's a large body of work. I was told I was I have a history of not taking really good advice. Okay, <laughs> it worked out well for me. Yeah. Um, early in my career, I got the advice: don't write these big plays, these big cast plays, because nobody's got, they're too expensive right. in America. Nobody right. will produce them. And I ignored that advice and continued to write these big cast plays, which they were right. They sat around for the most part for a long time until somebody in, in Texas, whether it was King Hill or, or I think it was probably King King Hill over right. in Amarillo, discovered one of them and, and, and put it on and got it into these contests. And um, suddenly there was a big market for all those big cast plays that nobody would do before. So now there's a whole world where that right. that's sort of the people in it think that's what I do. Yeah. I was also told at the same time, no more good advice I ignored was don't write monologue plays because they're boring and nobody wants to do them and there's no you can't make much off of them. And now during time of plague, um those monologue plays work beautifully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um uh, just done on on Zoom. Yeah. You know? so. Yeah, I mean if you if you've created a large enough library, eventually people will get to yeah, get yeah. To all of it. so an awful lot of my plays, they're there, they're available at the Samuel French website, the published ones, and then there's a whole bunch of them available there that are in, still in manuscript that they haven't got right. around to publishing right. yet. And um, a lot of those plays just get lost. Right. I mean, there's there's just too many. There's too many for French to publish. There's too many <laughs> for anybody else to publish. Right. There's too many of them, but I can't help it. I have to keep, <laughs> I have to keep doing it and hope that eventually um, they'll they'll make their way out into the world. So there's a bunch of plays like that. And there's a bunch of plays that, that I, 
that from my point of view, you're not always the best judge of your own work, probably, but from my point of view, are some of my best work that that nobody's done yet. One of the things I like about the Russians is that they're doing some of those really difficult plays that other, that Americans look at and say, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, and the Russians say, I understand this. I think it, it may have something to do with the fact that they've had such a tragic history yeah. and it's been so difficult to be a, an artist in Russia. I mean, you have to really want to be an artist right. to be to be an artist there because you could get killed, you know. And the, they do such beautiful work, but they were they're drawn to some of the places that are more complicated, more difficult, and that combine the tragic with the wildly funny. The Russians have a good sense of the mixture of tragedy and 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 comedy that you'll find, I think, if you really look in King Lear or Hamlet. I mean, Shakespeare knew how to do this. And sometimes yeah. people just, they play down the humor and the tragedies. But that's just absolutely the wrong thing to do. If you're right. doing King Lear, it should be funny. It should be horrifying and funny and beautiful and strange and scary. But it should also be fun. Right. And uh, the Russians seem to have a good sense of that. That Americans sometimes want everything to be clear. Right. So some of the plays that I like the most are the ones that were that are very complicated and that mix genres and mix feelings and do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, somebody will do them yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Some, someday. <laughs> so I, I know you went to the university of Iowa for your master's degree uh, and you were in the playwrights workshop. Playwright's um, workshop yeah. Is that, does that still exist? Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it is, uh, they have a fiction workshop, a okay. poetry workshop, and a playwrights workshop. Yeah. Okay, and what and explain that. I mean, I, I just I happen to see that in passing. And um, when when I was in undergrad, I Edward Albee was our resident playwright at the University of Houston, and so I got yeah. to I, you know I'm I am no playwright, but I tried to be one. I faked I, I faked my way through college as as a writer uh, a little bit because how do you not just sit there and, and take in what, what I'll be, you know, has to say. Um, yeah. and so that was one of those things that that's, that was our quote unquote playwright workshop was, was sitting with him and, and also, uh, Stuart Ostro who was on the musical side, but, um, what, what was playwright workshop or what is playwright workshop at university of Iowa? And did that, is that what kind of catapulted you to, uh, to, to I know you mentioned earlier about putting the, the play on the desk and, and your professor saying you're going to be a, you're, you're a playwright, but is playwright workshop what really kind of lit the fire? No, I got, that was the last sort of step okay. rather than the, okay. that happened at Ohio state when I was, when I was uh, teaching there just after I was an undergrad. So before but, university of yeah, Iowa. Yeah. 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 And then I went to the university of Massachusetts in Amherst for a couple of years. And that's where I had my first productions. Very good productions, better than, most of the professional productions right. I've had since. And I was lucky. I had terrific directors. Right. Um, and um, and uh, then I took a year off and then I went to the Playwrights Workshop at Iowa. Now, the workshop at Iowa is, is, is quite famous, actually. A guy named E.C. Maybe a long time ago, I think it was in the 30s or something, decided he wanted to create a, a, a Playwrights Workshop to go with the fiction and the poetry and like that. And uh, so he started this. And one of his early students was Tennessee Williams, who they threw out. <laughs> he hated Tennessee Williams and threw, threw him out. So it didn't have a great start. 
<laughs> but a lot of very good people have come through there then. And it was it was great for me. Oscar Brownstein, yeah. who uh, later ran the playwriting program at Yale, um, he uh, he ran the playwriting, the playwrights workshop when I was there. They took 12 people uh, all together in the program four four new playwrights a year. It was a three year Master right. of Fine Arts program. And um um, you'd read each other plays and you'd talk about them. And he had a particular theory about uh, how about uh, how plays are generated and what the relationship between the audience and the play is, which I still think is quite brilliant. I used to argue with him all the time about it, but it's it's very useful to me to, to if if I don't know what I'm doing at some point to say, what would Aki Brownstein say about this? Um, and uh, so he he had his own rather brilliant. He has, he has a book called The Strategies of the Drama, if anybody's interested, which is very much worth reading. Yeah. Um, but he was really helpful to me. And he was challenging and he would he would give you hell if you thought you were getting a big head. Got from Aki was the first production I had at Iowa was a play. Nobody understood what the hell it was about. And Aki came up to me after the show and he said, you do everything wrong, but you do it brilliantly. He <laughs> <laughs> parked away. And that was the kind of guy he was. He would, he would, he would attack you and then he would help you. And then he would, he was great. He would have cut off his arms for you if he thought. Right. So I spent, uh, I spent three years there. It was a great place to get productions. Mostly I was in school to get productions because when you first start out, the most important thing for a playwright is to be in production. Just be in production as much as you can. You need to act. Yeah. You need to direct. You need to work on sets, whatever you can do. But you need to have your work done. And you need a place to do that. And what the the graduate school at, at UMass in Amherst mm -hmm. and then later on at Iowa did for me was it gave me a chance to have all these productions. It, there were actors there for free. They were really good actors. And um, um, I was able to sort of learn how to do stuff by having all these productions there. And when I graduated from there, I, I was already having professional productions before I left Iowa. Right. And I just started my life as a wandering playwright. <laughs> and then later I went, I went, uh, I had an NEA grant and Aki had moved to Yale to teach playwriting yep. at Yale. Yep. And so I went there. Uh, he got me there for one semester and I sat in on the workshop at Yale and uh, watched him uh, work with uh, his own playwrights who were, wonderful people who've done well and uh francis mcdormand was there in the program as an actor and yeah. uh, jane kismeric and um lila robbins and lots of very talented people were there and uh, i got to meet a lot of folks and uh, so um i owe a lot to aki brownstein right. but that that program at iowa is still there and uh, going strong and producing i presume more good playwrights it gives you a place to be for three years right and get lots of productions and and uh aki said you you don't you don't learn in the workshops he said you don't learn so much from what other people say about your work as from what you hear yourself saying about their work ah. <laughs> he, he, he said so don't worry too much about the criticisms that you get in this workshop people are saying things for all kinds of reasons but but pay attention to what you hear yourself saying about them. 